Well, it's lovely to be with you. Please excuse me if my throat goes at any point uh, throughout the morning. Um, yesterday when we were driving up, we had some bad allergies, dust allergies, um, and we hoped that it would go away today. But if anything, it's got a little bit worse. Um, so if I struggle to, to speak at any point, um, please just bear with me uh, and I'll get the words out. Um, we do bring greetings from Trinity Grace Church uh, in Ramsbottom. That's where we're from. That's where we're members. Uh, and Trinity Grace Church is part of the Association of Confessional Baptist Churches. And as you may know or may have heard from Fabio, he's attended a couple of the, the meetings that we hold together. We get different people from churches together and we discuss uh, different things and in the ones that Fabio has been to we've prayed for this church and we continue to pray for this church uh, and it's wonderful to finally see the church uh, and put faces to the name of Ridley Hall uh, so it's wonderful to be with you and please do ac accept the greetings uh, that we bring it would be lovely to build closer relationships with you uh, and partner in the gospel if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and particularly to verse 21 that is the verse we're going to hone in on this morning verse 21 for since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In introduction to this verse and the surrounding verses of 1 Corinthians 1, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question that I've often been asked myself or people have at least given me their view of the answer. And the question is, what do we need as churches today? What do we need? As a young preacher in particular, people come up to me and they say, well, you know, you're, you're in some way the future of the churches. You're going to be a pastor one day, God willing. So you need to know this. This is what you need to really hold firm to. Often people say what we need as churches in this time is greater understanding greater knowledge of the scriptures, greater understanding of the history of the church and how to react to the difficult times we have today. Well, that definitely is one thing that we need. But is it the greatest thing? Does it have prominence above others? Other people have said, well, we need greater love. Paul said himself, you know, we have faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. So is it just greater love that we need as churches? Again, that's an excellent candidate, an excellent thing to have. One thing that comes up repeatedly is prayer meetings. We need full prayer meetings. We need to be a praying people. That's another important thing. People say we need revival, just revival in general. If only there was revival in it, if only we prayed and God answered our prayers, then that would be what we need stronger men, stronger women, stronger families. 
These are all things that we hear. And it seems that when we come to these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Fabio helpfully read for us, it seems that Paul is addressing this question in a way to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were in a very difficult context. And he is beginning this letter to them by saying, you need this. This is what you need in your challenging place, in your challenging context. Amongst all the difficulties you are facing, you need this. Let's dive in a little to the Corinthian context. What sort of situation was this church in? Well, Corinth in itself was a multicultural place. There were many trade routes that went in and out of first century Corinth. That brought many different cultural views, many different religions. It was, you could say, a multi-religious place. There were Jews, there were Greeks, there were tabernacles, there were pagan temples, all within the same city. Corinth was also maybe, you could say, a, a multi-moral place. I know that's not actually a word, but there was great breadth in the perceived morality of the people. What was acceptable? In the first century, people often rightly say that to Corinthianize was almost an insult in their day because the Corinthians were seen as being so lewd, being so sexually immoral. And so it was almost an insult to say, oh, you're like a Corinthian. You are immoral. The temple of Diana, which you may have heard, it was a, a pagan temple right at the centre of Corinth. And an early historian commented that this temple had you know, over a thousand pagan prostitutes. Pagan women who come and commit sin in the temple. It exists for this immorality. So Corinth was obviously a difficult place for this church to be. And what do we find in the text here? Well, they were facing difficulty. They were being mocked. They were being ridiculed about the gospel, for the gospel. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They call it utter foolishness. They say it's ridiculous. It's a joke. But he is saying to them, it is this foolishness. It is this message that they ridicule so much that has such power. That is what you need to cling onto. And so this leads us to our first point. The foolishness of the message. We find those words in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message. The foolishness of the message. What did Paul think the Corinthians needed? At this time, Paul is a divinely inspired author of the scriptures. What did he think they needed? What did the Holy Spirit say to them here? They needed the foolishness of the message. They needed to stand on this special message of God. We see immense irony in these verses, don't we? He says... The Jews, in verse 22, request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. 
but we preach Christ crucified. We are different to the Jews, different to the Greeks. And this message of Christ crucified in verse 23, it is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it is foolishness to the Greeks. To the Jews, it is simply seen as something that isn't true. It is a falsification of true religion. And to the Greeks, with their philosophy, that is silly nonsense. We have better understanding than to think that a man who died on a cross is the saviour of the world. He says in verse 20, where is the wise? The wise being the philosophers, the Greeks. Where is the scribe? The scribes were Jewish people. Where is the disputer, the argumenter, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There are these themes of wisdom and foolishness, aren't there? And Paul switches between one and the other, pitting the world's wisdom against God's foolishness. And he says that God's foolishness is greater than the world's wisdom because the world's wisdom in reality is the greatest foolishness and the thing that they ridicule, the so-called foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of the gospel, this silly Christian message. That is true wisdom. So Paul pits these things against one another. And amidst the ridicule that these Christians face, these Corinthian Christians, it pleased God by the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It is by the very message of foolishness, the message of God's gospel, it is the message that they mock that will arrest their hearts and save them from their sins. It is what they call foolishness that will be their salvation. It's wonderful to hear testimonies of believers, isn't it, when they've been converted. And I have a friend who has this wonderful phrase when he gives his testimony. He says, let me tell you about how God dealt with me. And I think that's a really helpful way of putting it. Because it shows us that when we become Christians, it is about how God led us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about God changing our hearts by a message that we once ridiculed. What Paul is saying here to the Corinthians is a timeless message. It's not just relevant to them. No, it was Foolishness. The gospel was foolishness to the Corinthians. And is it not true that it's foolishness to people today? When we go back to our homes this afternoon, all the people we walk past, they're striving after this thing or that thing of the world. It is because the gospel to them is utter foolishness. Why would they bow down to an invisible God? when they could go and chase after all the visible pleasures of the world. It was true for the Corinthians and it is true for us. But it also remains true that the message, the message that was powerful for them, is powerful for us. We must 
preach this foolish, foolishness. We must have confidence in this foolishness. Maybe you've heard of Tom Holland. He's a, a popular historian. Uh, and he has done a lot of history and, and written on the history of the Christian church. He's written a famous book called Dominion, which tracks the history of Christendom, this powerful force in particularly the Western world. And he said something very interesting in an interview that I once heard. He was asked, just from a historical perspective, you know, Tom, you're not really a Christian yourself. You don't believe the claims the Bible makes, but you've studied Christian history a lot. And from your perspective, what do Christians need to do today to try and stay relevant? And it was really interesting what his answer was. He said that from his perspective... If church history tells us anything, it is that Christians need, Christians must preach the weird stuff. He said, the moment you fail to preach the weird stuff, the moment you become embarrassed because everyone says your message is foolish, then you will fail to have any relevance in society at all. And why is it? Is it not because... It is precisely in what the world calls foolish. Is it not because it is in the fundamental, most amazing, miraculous truths of the Bible that we find the greatest power? It is in the resurrection that we receive life. Is it, in, it is in new creation that we see the world will be renewed. It is in the miracles of Jesus that we see he is the Son of God. And it is in the creator of the heavens and the earth being crucified on a cross that we see salvation and life. In death we see life. It is such foolishness. But it is in that foolishness. It is in the weird stuff that the power lies. You might have heard this quote from Martin Luther, but it is a, a wonderful one. And it encourages us to stand on this gospel Foolishness. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest expression every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are presently attacking, I am confessing no Christ at all. What's he saying there? He's saying that the points that the world are attacking are the fundamental points of Christianity. It is in those points about Christ about his crucifixion, his divinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, his second coming. It is in them that we find the greatest, the greatest power. They are the most fundamental parts of the gospel. And those are the parts the world attacks. Those are the parts the world calls foolishness. And so for the Corinthians, and I think indeed for us, we must stand on the foolishness of the message. The foolishness of the message that Paul mentions in verse 21. But in this verse, he goes on. There is more. For what does he say? He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. When Paul was addressing 
the Corinthians. He didn't just give them this message. They needed more than the message in and of itself. They needed the message preached. Amidst the challenges the Corinthian church were facing, Paul's manifesto for them is to stand on the gospel and to preach it. Paul, indeed the Holy Spirit here, did not just give them and has not just given us a message to deliver, but he has given us a divine method of delivery. He has given us the way and the means. He has given us the wonderful truth, the glorious redemption, the kingdom of heaven. And he has given us the methodology, the tools by which we might go and gather the world in. Some translations, because of the Greek here, even translate it simply the foolishness of preaching. And this means when they translate it, the foolishness of preaching the message that he's just mentioned. And is it not, this not crucial that we heed the command? We must not just stand on the gospel. We must preach the gospel. Let me give you two reasons, considering the rest of the New Testament, the Holy Scriptures, why this is the case. Firstly, because preaching is God's chosen method of delivery. Preaching is God's chosen method of delivery. We read here that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We believe that there are those who will believe who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And how do they come in? How will God save them? Paul tells us it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save them. It is by preaching that they will be gathered in. Preaching is part of God's plan. And this is why Christians in the past have called preaching the primary means of grace. Simply by this they mean that preaching is the usual and special tool by which, by which God will impart grace in the hearts of his people. I can imagine that's true in most of our experience. When we think about how we were saved, how was it? So often is it not through the preaching of the word of God, through us hearing the gospel? I want to track this through the New Testament. And you can turn with me to these passages or simply listen. I will read them out. And I want to look at Luke chapter 24 because this is actually what Christ gives to the apostles when he ascends into heaven. Luke chapter 24 and verse 46. We'll read to verse 48. This, he says, then he, that's Jesus said to them. And note, this is right at the end of Luke's gospel. He said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things. What does Jesus say to them? He gives them this summary of the gospel about Christ's sufferings, his resurrection. And then he says, repentance and remission of sins will be preached by you to all the nations. And it will begin in Jerusalem. If you turn over the pages to Acts chapter 2, remember that Acts and Luke are both authored by Luke. So he is in some way continuing his narrative here. Acts chapter 2, he picks up on this theme. What did we read at the end of Luke? It would be preached in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. After the Holy Spirit comes, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. And he goes on and he preaches to them. And many are saved. Indeed, multitudes are saved. This is the foundation of the New Testament church after the ascension of Christ. This is where the beginning of the church, those who are first called in, are gathered. And it is by Peter's sermon in Jerusalem that Christ prophesied. And if it is true that that prophecy is fulfilled in relation to Jerusalem, will it not be fulfilled in relation to all the nations? Because Christ said, this will be preached in all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And look even to the end of Acts with me, because Acts doesn't just begin with this apostolic preaching. Apostolic preaching actually bookmarks the whole of Acts. If we know what this, this bookmarking is, it's book bookending even. Excuse me, the bookmark goes in the middle of the book, not the ends. But it, it bookends the book, you see, you have those two ends which keep the book together. Well, it is there in the beginning and it is there in the end. It's an overarching theme of the whole of Acts. Look at Acts 28 and verse 28 with me. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And when he, that is Paul, has said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, with all confidence, no one forbidding him. This preaching is at the beginning and at the end. It was the apostles' work to preach this wonderful message, the message that all people called foolishness. I want to go to one more place because we've seen how Christ gave this preaching imperative to his apostles, how they worked it out. But you might say, well, it was simply an apostolic thing. Now it doesn't have the same primacy. But turn with me to 2 Timothy and chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because here we move from the generation of Paul and the apostles to Timothy. Paul is in this book guiding Timothy, tutoring him to be a leader of the church, coming into the second, later part of the first century and moving out of the apostolic age. 
What does he do in this verse? He does this. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. He says to Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul invokes Christ himself in giving this command to Timothy. He goes on, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Preach the word, Timothy. If there is one thing that you ought to do, preach the word. That is the work of the church. So preaching is God's chosen method of delivery. Christ gave it to the apostles and the apostles practiced it and have given it to us. It is what we ought to do to preach this foolish message. So it is God's chosen method of delivery and secondly within this point it's also God's own method of delivery. God's own method. He takes ownership over the preaching of his word. God is present in the preaching of his word. This is what the New Testament teaches us and indeed what Christians have believed, reformed Christians have believed through our history. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and here after talking about the gospel going to the Gentiles, Paul then says, for whoever calls, in, in verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he asks this section of questions. He's asking, how will they be saved? There are such great promises for the nations, but how will they be gathered in? He says in verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher. As we look at verse 14 there, there's that phrase, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Now, if you look at the Greek of that verse, and indeed, a lot of Bibles acknowledge it. So I have a New King James here. It acknowledges it in the side. If you have an ESV, that does the same that there are some versions which indeed translate it this way. The Greek is really saying, how shall they believe him of whom they have not heard? They only put the in him of whom they have not heard in order to make sense of it. Because the immediate point of the text doesn't seem, well, Paul's saying about how the gospel is going to go to the nations after Christ. How can it be himself speaking to them? But the original in and of itself says believe him of whom they have not heard. And so we have this wonderful idea that in the preaching of God's word, in the preaching of Christ's own message, there is God indwelling the preacher, God speaking to his chosen and special people. We see the same theme in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Paul says this, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And he goes on, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says, as apostles, we're ambassadors. And what does an ambassador do? He represents the one that sent him. He represents the one that sent him. He speaks for the one that sent him. And if there was any question over this, he goes on. As though God were pleading through us. He says, when we speak to you, Corinthians, as we preach to you, it is as though God were speaking to you himself. Or turn to another place, Ephesians chapter 2. This is a particularly interesting text where we see this assumed. I'll read Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 14 to 17. 14 gives us the context and we'll focus on verse 17. From verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in the flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Paul is speaking of Christ bringing peace in the church here. And then he says, And he, the same Christ, came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Now, anyone who knows the New Testament well and the wanderings of Jesus knows he never went to Ephesus. Christ didn't go to Ephesus. He didn't preach to the Ephesian church. But he did. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. He came and preached peace to you, Ephesians. And it was through the apostolic preaching that he had ordained as the way by which the nations would come in. You Gentile Ephesians, he came and spoke to you. He preached peace. This is not only something we find in the scriptures, but is also played out in how Christians have interpreted the scriptures in the past. Whether you go to the early church, Augustine, he says when the preacher preaches, we hear God speak to his people. Or maybe John Calvin. John Calvin was so clear on this. He said when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, God speaks to us as if he himself had openly appeared from heaven. As if he himself had opened up the roof and spoken to us or Martin Luther this is not Luther himself but a scholar of Martin Luther's preaching and theology he comments this about Luther he says for Luther preaching was not a preacher's ideas stimulated by the prod of a text it is not the preacher's reflections about God and life Christian preaching when it is faithful to the word of God is God speaking. When it presents Christ so that faith becomes possible, it is God speaking. It is God's very own audible address 
to all who hear it, just as surely as if Christ himself had spoken it. Paul's message to the Corinthians is absolutely crystal clear. Their job is to be a people who engage week in, week out in gospel preaching. In preaching the foolishness of the message unto the salvation of the nations. This isn't Paul's way. It is God's way. And so, in thinking about all of this, the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What are just a few small points of application? How do we react to this? How is it to affect the way we live our Christian lives? Well, you might ask, what does a message about the necessity of preaching the whole gospel have to do with me? The majority of us as Christians, in fact, aren't preachers. And yet, it has everything to do with each Christian. Was Paul, when he spoke to the Corinthians here, addressing the elders or the pastors? No, he was addressing the Corinthian church. He says that in the beginning, and it's wonderful to see the way he speaks to, speaks to them. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, who with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grace and peace to you. It's to the church. Paul isn't looking to some bishops or some who claim to have similar authority to him and say, no, this is reserved for you. I only say this to you. No, it is to the church. All the believers in Corinth. And so it has everything to do with us for the scriptures are a word to us. And so, firstly, in application, do we support our preachers? Do we support them in attendance? I often think when we look at the world, and sometimes it saddens us to see how many empty chairs there are in our churches, how few come in. When we do evangelism and we leaflet or Maybe we even have great conversations and people say, oh, I'll, I'll come to church on Sunday. But they don't come. Does it not sadden us? But does this passage not exhort us to attend to the preaching of the word ourselves? I want to ask, why would the world be interested in coming in to hear the preaching of God's word if only half of the churches can be bothered to come out to listen themselves. How much do we value preaching? Do we really believe that it will save those people out there? Because if we do, we will attend to it ourselves. And in doing that, they will see the primacy of it in our lives. They will see people coming into the church buildings to hear preaching and they will come and hear themselves. A friend wrote this in a, a blog post, I think, a year back and it was thought-provoking to look uh, and, and read these words. He said, suppose the mainstream media knew that God was going to speak from heaven to people at an appointed time in a specific place. In that case, you would expect them to show up with cameras 
and reporters. It's news. It's the most dramatic thing that has happened in the week. But do we treat it that way? We must search our hearts and see whether we really have the right view of this message and it being preached. May we speak to people and invite them to come and hear the preaching with the confidence that Paul has here. That despite them thinking it as such foolishness, despite them mocking it, despite them thinking it is just weird stuff, there's no truth. May we have such confidence that this message, which they so revile and hate, will be the message that saves So firstly, do we attend to it by coming to church, by having confidence in it? But do we also respond to it in obedience and love? How do we obey the preaching of God's word? We must respond to it. For if it is not merely the whims of the preacher over his text, but instead God delivering his world to his people. We must respond. If we are God's people, we must act. God calls us to. And how do we treat our ministers, treat those that preach the gospel to us, that give us this wonderful message? We must pray for them. We must do good to them. We must Pray that they do not fall away, for we treasure the preached word they bring so much. Have we actually told them recently how much their preaching has helped us? It is the best thing to hear when you're a minister. So often it is after preaching filled with discouragements. You think, did I really properly deliver that point? Was it even clear? Did people understand? Simply the acknowledgement that the word was understood can bring joy to a minister's heart. Consider the, the riches that you have in listening to the preached word. When someone gives us a great gift, maybe it is a check for £10,000, Do we just take it and not thank them? And how much greater are our spiritual riches in hearing even one sermon from the lips of a preacher that God is using to deliver his message? We must be so thankful to them. We must love our preachers because we love the message preached. And for preachers, is it not our greatest privilege to preach this message. May we always be encouraged, even if we feel we have not done justice to the text that the Lord has given us, may we still be encouraged that in the preaching of his word, he will do his will. It is his chosen method of delivery. And so, in conclusion... I want to ask, 
that question again, what do we need? Well, you might expect me here to say, oh, what we need is exactly this and only this. The irony of the introduction and the conclusion of this sermon is that those other things I mentioned, we are in such need of them. But one thing we certainly need, and the thing that God is drawing our attention to this morning, is the foolishness of the message preached. We need to stand on the foolishness, and we need to preach it. We need to preach the weird stuff that that historian spoke about, not because for his reason it has been seen as useful throughout the church's history. No, it is much greater than that. It is because that foolishness is the power of God. That foolishness is what he will use to save those 